Hello and welcome to Cross the Bridge with the Artificial Hipsters. My name is Kieran Casey. And my name's Jim Corbett. And today we're going to discuss neutrality and defence, specifically and primarily as it pertains to Ireland, but no doubt we'll branch out into other areas such as Euro, Europe, um, NATO. Well, what's the new world order looking like um, given the war in Ukraine? Uh, is China flexing its muscles? And if so, what position should Ireland take? So, Jim, this is a topic that you suggested we talk about, and I think it's a topic that you know more about than I do. Um, Possibly. So one of the few. One of the very few. But um, <laughs> we give you the <laughs> we give you the task of maybe setting out your position or putting forward a problem statement that we can build on. Okay. Well, let me start off by saying that. Although, obviously, I hail from England, as you may have noticed in my accent, um, the I do understand the Irish, the original Irish position on neutrality, because it didn't see Britain in the way that the British like to think of it. Uh, Ireland saw Britain as a recently conquering nation, which had mm. been sent home with its tail between its legs and saw no reason to regard Ireland, uh, sorry, Britain as a, as a potential ally mm. of Ireland. And so in that context, not really wanting to join in with the Germans either. And um, they went down the, the neutrality route as being really the only one which was possible. Mm. Now, I think it's, it's and, I, and I've said that quite glibly, but I think there were obviously, there was a sizable um, volume of opinion at that time, this is sort of 1920-ish, um, which in, on principle felt that that was the right thing to do, that one shouldn't be associated with the major power blocks and hegemonies in the in Europe and the world. So I do, I do, I really do understand that. The interesting thing just, was... Just, though, sorry, Jim, sorry, yeah. just, just because it probably is worth teasing that a little bit more. Right. So... Um, Yes, there was some bias in the the policy. Um, I mean, primarily driven with through Eamon de Valera's position and his yeah. experiences. So yes, I think we'd all accept that there was some bias from its, you know, this new state's previous experience with with Britain and not wanting to to see it as an ally. Um, but do you think Absolutely. there's anything else? Do you think there's some merit in it being? a new state that wanted to assert its position on the world stage as it's making a decision, you know, a self-determined position on where it stood on this issue? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think um, that was why de Valera attended the uh, 1918 um, peace talks, uh, even though he wasn't a head of state at that point. Or at least not in the eyes of the world. I mean, he was the head of the of the Doyle at that time, mm. or the pres president of the Republic. But um, <clears throat> so sorry, you come back to you come back to yeah. nineteen eighteen. Well, nineteen eighteen, De Valera led a delegation to try and get representation in the peace talks at the end yeah. of the First World War for Ireland. It was nineteen nineteen, I think, and nineteen twenty. Um, and in that, he was hopeful. That President Woodrow Wilson would back him 
yeah. because of the large Irish vote in America. Uh, but President Wilson had no intention of doing that. Yeah. So um, he didn't, which meant that Ireland never got an independent voice. All yeah. that Ireland got was the same as most of the other um, empire or Commonwealth countries was that they were represented by the British representatives. Which yeah, which which was which was the sovereign position in the world at the, at that time. It was. Yeah, um, but, I mean, you could see from that time that was when uh, De Valera, especially, had what I would hesitate, but I still describe as a romantic view of what the position of Ireland in the world would be. And mm -hmm. it's a, probably a romantic view, not, didn't really ever leave him. Um, he held it all his life. And that's fine. That's fine for a philosopher um, and a politician out of power, but it doesn't always work yeah. uh, if you've actually got a call of shots. Yeah. There's a great dichotomy in this, though, because although that was what they wanted to do, it, it absolutely refused to recognise the fact that 50,000 Irishmen were killed in the First World War fighting for Britain or yeah. fighting for the British Army. And so there was clearly an enormous number of people who had answered the call, as it were, and went off to uh, from Ireland. Um, a sizeable contingent of troops uh, went off from Ireland to fight in the First World War. Now, I know a number of those were going on the basis of a promise made to John Redmond at the mm. time that Ireland would be given um, at least some form of independence, if not full independence, when the war was won. Mm. Uh, and he then tried to get people to join up and so on and so forth. Now, that was a promise which was absolutely scandalously forgotten mm. by uh, the British government as soon as the war was finished. And... Hopefully, if they if they hadn't forgotten it, who knows what might how history might have worked out. But anyway, they did. But just on that same point, fast forward to World War Two. Yeah, and I suppose that's when Ireland's neutrality as a sovereign state was, I suppose, initially confirmed. And again, for all those reasons that we've talked about, but similarly from the Republic of Ireland, there were thousands of. Irish people that joined indeed, the yeah. British Army and, and fought in World War II. The, the, the slight difference was, and I think this is where the um, this is where uh, the, the De Valera thing came to the fore, was that people who went off to fight for the British forces from Ireland um, were regarded as deserters mm. and were potentially open to prosecution. When they came back, I know of one particular person who you would probably know as well, um, who went to England to fight for uh, uh, join the RAF mm. during the war, and he never spoke about it ever again in the rest of his life, even to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and when I mentioned it once, a member of his family said, "Oh no, 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 we don't talk about that." Yeah, and and the reason was actually not because they were afraid of a Republican backlash or anything. It's because, in principle, he could have been arrested. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think very many, if any, of them were were actually arrested, but that was the way the principle had worked out. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the it was although again I do understand it because it was almost the first opportunity that the Irish government had had to is, express its 
independence yeah. in the teeth of a major international event. Mm. Nonetheless, I think in the first world, the second world war, neutrality was a big mistake okay. for Ireland um, because it left a bitterness in Anglo-Irish relations for years afterwards, years afterwards. You know, you may not have noticed it in Ireland, but by God, you knew it in England. The fact that, you know, uh, well, I see one of the other things, and I'll just, I'll finish this point at there, is that there were two things that, that De Valera did or said, which confirmed everybody in the belief that this was, that he was just a huckster, really, on the international stage. He was just trying things out. One of them was when, I think he was asked after the war, because obviously the... Irish merchant ships crossing the Atlantic were protected by the convoy system by the US and Royal Navies. Mm. Um, without uh, now, they weren't the only neutral who that happened to. The Swedes were the same, but um, at one point, De Valera was asked, "Did he not think, you know, how could he justify it that uh, here was a war, and um, what did he expect us to do?" To help him and he said well i expect you to defend us mm. or defend our ships and protect our ships and i thought well that's a bit bloody strong mm. uh, i've always thought that was a bit strong i mean i can't you know carve your own furrow by all means but uh you've got to be prepared for the other side so i thought that weakened his case dramatically and the other bit and this is a m- much more in my view egregious fault on his part he paid a visit to the german embassy to express the formal condolences of Ireland at the death of Adolf Hitler um, and signed a book of uh, remembrance or whatever. I think he's the only signature in the book. I think it's probably the only signature in any books worldwide. But anyway, that's that was, I think, an enormous, enormous mistake. The war was lost for the Germans. Well, you know, Hitler was dead. The war was gone. The Allies were supreme, including the Russians. And here was... De Valera seeking to, I don't know what he was seeking to do, but he just soured relationships with everybody by doing mm. that. And I don't know what he hoped to gain. Anyway, that all came about as a result of neutrality. Well, I, I, I think there's... Um... There's a couple of things, right? There is a, I think you've accepted understandable position for this new small state to assert its self-determined position on the world stage that it wants to hold itself as being neutral mm-hmm. and that there could be some legacy issues that informed that policy. The specific actions and the detail of, of and I'm not to ignore that. I, I mean, I do think you can look back at that time and you can say, that you know Ireland failed to answer the moral question that was put to the world with the the Nazis and what they were trying to achieve. But I think that it's it's nuanced. Like all this conversation is going to be, it's going to be nuanced. What I what I do, um, I suppose, just want to pick you up on and go back to that it caused some bitterness between Anglo-Irish relationships. Um, some of which may only have been noticed in the UK. And I can get a sense or an understanding as to why that might be the case. 
Um, but I think if you broaden out the context to De Valera, who himself had been imprisoned, uh, who had been involved in an uprising, whose leaders had been executed not that many years previously, mm-hmm. um, that we, you know, as an Irish nation had been fighting a conflict with what we saw as an oppressing, invading nation for whatever period of time you want to describe that as being. And that it was still very fresh and very raw. And that if there were some things done in that period in the 1930s and 40s that were, you know, looking back, not as as perfect as they should be. And there is that context, there's that backdrop that you you know, have still the same individuals whose life experience has been molded and shaped by what I still look as being some horrendous actions on behalf of a British state in 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 Dublin. Um, and as you you know described as well, the failure to um, deliver home rule despite the fact that you know tens of thousands went off and fought in World War One. You know, there must be some understanding or some context that says, well, I can understand why the Irish position was not as trusting towards its neighbour as... Yeah, I, 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 can, I understand that as well. I mean, yeah. I think one of the issues here, is, well, the first issue I'm going to pick up on is I don't think it's true in the period up until the late 30s, I don't think it was true that there was a single Irish position there was a single Irish governmental position more or less put forward. But the fact yeah. that Irish largely men, but not only men, had gone forward in such huge numbers to the First World War and indeed a very substantial number came forward to fight in the Second World War. I think yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So there's more than one strand of mm. Irish opinion yeah. on that. Um, I think the second thing, though, and it's in, I mean, I can ex- accept everything up until 1939. I think there comes a point when you have to say, hang on a minute, there is there are bigger issues at, at, at risk here. Yeah. Um, nobody's asking us to go back into the empire. Nobody's asking us to, uh, uh, you know, participate actively in the fighting. Mm. Um perhaps we should reconsider our view in some way. And I think what that brings you to is what does neutrality actually mean? Because, for example, had Ireland said, I mean, as Ireland is saying at the moment, we're not politically neutral, we're just militarily neutral. I'm not sure that's a line that can actually be maintained. But it certainly could have been put forward in 1939. And if they'd said, well, we don't like the Germans much, we don't like the Nazis, to be precise, Mm. Um, we don't like fascism, so we're going to stand out against that. That's politically, we're not neutral about that. Um, and we're not going to actually fight, but we are prepared for our airfields to be used and for the treaty ports, which has only just been given up then anyway, mm. for the treaty ports to be used for the duration of uh, hostilities. That would have made a wholesale change, and it would have made actually defending Irish convoys much easier. I, I, I and I I would find it hard to defend completely every aspect of the neutrality position that Ireland took at the time. Um, but I do think that there is some context and some rationale, emotional and 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 political, 
um, that informed that policy. But the other thing, which your question is, is absolutely, you know, I think the right question. What does neutrality mean? And I, I agree as well, that position of we're not politically neutral, we're just militarily neutral, that needs to be explored more, particularly in the world we're in at the moment. But just a couple of points. First of all, de Valera didn't write neutrality into the Constitution of Ireland. And, and that's important because I think that's a recognition that it is a political decision in an ever-changing world. Um, I think the, the second issue is, is what neutrality meant to the psyche of Irish people and still means to the psyche of Irish people. You know, a recent poll will show that 62, 63% of people in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, do not want a change in the status of our neutrality position. And, and this is where maybe rational thinking and, and, and critical thinking and logical thinking, um, you know, doesn't always explain things, that there is an emotional yes, there is. connection between what it means to be neutral. And I think even when I was growing up, and, you know, our, our experiences of growing up are very different as we've explored many times in the past. But when I grew up, the idea that we were a neutral country was something that was very attractive. It was something that I was proud of. It meant that we were honest brokers. We were peacekeepers. We didn't, you know, um, we, we didn't see war as inevitability. And if there was to be a war, we wanted to take a position uh, of taking an approach where we might be the peacemakers or the mediators. And, and that as a small nation that let's face it is not going to be any kind of a military super force that the best thing that we could bring into the world in in terms of our input on the world stage would be as peacekeepers and i love that idea i and i think i think i don't know this to be true but my hypothesis is that irish people and the reason why over 60 percent of them um, feel that they don't want a change in Irish neutrality is for that reason. And, and it's a core almost value. And, and sometimes as well, just if, I'll, 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 instead of the language of neutrality and having a policy of neutrality, and again, this might sound over romantic and, and um, you know, it, it certainly would be open for some cynical attack. But what if our policy was just that, you know, it's peace? You know, we want peace in the world and that we want to position ourselves as the small nation that isn't going to be a military super force, but will actually adopt the policy of seeking peace. And that neutrality is sort of, it's just a different way of describing that. Well, let's take two points. Mm. One is the position that you'd like Ireland to be seen as a peacemaker and to be part of peacekeeping forces authorised by the United Nations is an entirely moral and, and, and proper um, position. But you've, you, you put limits on it. Ireland puts limits on it. So, for example, um, when the uh, coalition forces went into the Gulf War the first time, well, after the invasion of Kuwait, with the full backing of the UN, and of the other Gulf states, Ireland didn't come flocking to that war. Oh, of course, there was a limited amount that they could have done anyway, but they could have been more supportive than they were. Um, and one can envisage circumstances where the UN may say, 
okay, you know, we now authorise, not peacekeeping, Korea was an example, the first Gulf War was an example, I think the second Gulf War was a complete bloody aberration where everybody lost their heads, but, um, and, and, and they haven't really done it since, but one could argue the war on terror, such as it is, crosses national boundaries, that is something, uh, and I happen to know, that there are, at least there were, numbers of um, Al-Qaeda people hiding in Ireland, ready to go into um, into action in various different parts of Europe. The um, Glasgow bombers are about 30, 20, 20 years ago, something like that, tried to bomb Glasgow Airport. They were all junior doctors, and a couple of them were based in Ireland. Yeah, but a lot of, I mean, a lot of, you know, Al-Qaeda members that had launched attacks across Europe were, were based in other European countries. I don't, so well. I'm not sure if Ireland's neutrality position made it more attractive for Al-Qaeda to locate some of its cells. No, one, no, but part of the trouble there, and this is now so we get a bit more, um, what shall I say, conjecturist mm. at this point, um, one of the things that neutrality has done is it has made Irish governments believe that they don't have to worry too much about this stuff, despite the, you know, very prominent examples on their own soil uh, of what terrorists can get up to various times, uh, even home of the homegrown variety. Mm. Um, but they seem to think, oh, no, we don't have to do this. We don't have to worry about this. Now, when there was a bomb in Dublin, we're going back a bit now, they... They uh, passed um, the Special Powers Act in two minutes flat mm. uh, to take action, but they never did. They've never done that since for anything else. And so I think because the government takes up look during the First World War, not the First World War, the First Gulf War, when it broke out, it so happens that my in-laws were staying with us in London. And there was a lot of wild talk at the time of old oh, Saddam Hussein's got missiles that will reach London. No, he didn't have them at all. Everybody knew he didn't have them. But that's uh, it wasn't actually said by Tony Blair at that point. It was a bit for the second world, the second Gulf War. He said that, and it wasn't true then either. But everybody was thinking, oh well, you know, he's he's been he has got rockets and he does launch in you know huge bloody wars as he fought against Iran when millions of people died on both sides. Perhaps he can do so. Perhaps he's got a way of infiltrating things into us. And my mother-in-law, we were just talking about this one night, and my mother-in-law said almost with glee, and she wasn't a, a, an actual Republican, actually, uh, but she said almost with glee, well, it won't affect us anyway, because we're neutral. And I said, well, it affect you if a bloody great bomb goes off in Liverpool. You'll know all about it if it's a, if it's a nuclear weapon. Um, so don't say it won't affect you, because it bloody well will. Well, well, um, the, the, sorry, uh, I know that's a slightly uh, lightweight example. But, <laughs> but, but um, I mean, the, there's a lot of factors here. This is where this becomes so nuanced. I mean, geographically, Ireland is an island off the edge of Europe, and there yes. is safety in that position as well. We're not bordering any other, you know, European countries. Land war in 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 Europe. Um, do you know? Do you know how many nuclear depth charges there are fixed in place in the Western approaches? I don't know the actual number, but I know they're there. 
Yeah, no, look, I'm not saying we're, we're you know, we're, we're not vulnerable from, from threat and, and particularly threat from, from nuclear war. But like, it goes back to this discussion on psyche and what it means. And, and yes, okay, it can manifest itself in us feeling safe and therefore maybe not taking uh, actions. Although I would dispute that, you know, the same as all European countries, I think Ireland plays its part in trying to subvert, you know, terrorism as it might be through Al-Qaeda or any other forms. And we are part of that European police force and, and sharing of intelligence mm. and so on. Um, but I, I just want to contrast, you know, my upbringing and connection to the state. And again, I, I did come from a, you know, I'd say Republican mindset. My yeah. grandfather was in 1916. He was in the War of Independence. He fought on the Civil War. He fought on the anti-treaty side. So, you know, I, I put all that into the mix. Um, yeah. But but this this idea of neutrality was something that I was proud of. Now, if we contrast that with your upbringing, I'm not going to tell you, but I mean, if you think about your relationship with the state and your even relationship with the word neutrality and what that means, I'm sure it's not the same as mine. No, it's not. So you may see neutrality almost as being a negative because your country and the way you were brought up and that mindset and that psyche is that we... Not only did we fight in World War One, we fought in World War Two. We don't shirk our responsibilities. If there's an aggressor, we're going to do our bit to take them on. Yes, you're right. But um, my position on neutrality is not that it is a bad thing. I think it is something with a high moral tone, like pacifism. Pacifism is something which is sort of almost innately morally good. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't fit in very well with the modern world. And my general view of it is that someone somewhere, and over the last 80 years, it's basically been America, Britain, NATO, and at times Russia, have mm -hmm. to stand up and do the fighting while everybody else adopts a high moral tone. It's not just Ireland. I mean, the Swiss are the worse. Yeah, I, look, I mean, there's no question that the world we are in at the moment is very, very different than anything that we've described in the 1940s yeah. and, and, and even since then. So where we are at the moment with the war in Ukraine, um, lots of neutral countries are rethinking their positions. Sweden and Finland are about to join NATO. Um, I think Austria is, is having this debate. And we've seen in Ireland recently as well um, these various fora on on. On neutrality and you know Michael D Higgins got himself into some controversy when he made his own comments on it and and it, yeah. it, it stirred up a conversation which was good that was healthy oh yeah conversation is always good and, and by the way I still think this is a conversation to be had um but uh it, it's an interesting position because um you feel when you describe yourself as a neutral country that you're in and you know it, it does sound sometimes like taking a high moral ground, but it, it feels like you're in a house. Let's let's think about it this way, and and that that's the position is is within this this home that we've created, and if we are to sacrifice for neutrality, it means that we have to expand our home and join forces with uh, other countries that are superior in terms of economic and military and political. Uh, power and force 
and that as a small state, uh, we're not actually going to have a voice in there. We're not actually going to have a role to play. Um, it, it, it's not going to, our, our viewpoint is not going to be reflected. And then if you look at it in the world today, and you look at, you know, I think there's two blocks, if Ireland is to consider neutrality or it's shipped from its neutrality, it, its relationship with NATO, which it hasn't got at, at this point. But NATO is largely the US and, and, and Europe. And yeah. the US position in recent years, you know, this is not John F. Kennedy or, or you know, who was it, Teddy Roosevelt. This is mm. Trump and Biden. This is isolationist. This is, you yeah. know, policies of let's do what's right for America rather than the rest of the world. So well, we know where American isolationism leads. Yeah, exactly. But but then and and, and look at, at at Britain and its decision on Brexit. And and so it's carving itself away from Europe. We won't get into that reasons why that that's happened. another day. That's another day. So you're actually looking at these blocks that are, you know, NATO, like so you want us to align with a U.S. position, and I'm suspicious of the U.S. position. And I understand that. I'd, I'd be, I'm very suspicious of them a lot of the time, and particularly when it comes to war. And and and, um, and, and my suspicion is this: that not not always is everything done to find a peaceful solution, because of an arms industry that uh, is worth billions and billions, and that yeah. there are times when peaceful solutions might be found. But for other reasons, they're not found. And I don't want, I, you know, as, as you know, Ireland and, and in our home as we are at the moment, I don't really want to be part of that. And I don't think that if we, if we surrender, I, I think if we do surrender our, our current status, that our voice won't be heard. So that's, that's, that's one position. And that doesn't just include NATO, I think in Europe as well, that I, I'm not sure I trust the bloc that is Europe to no. um, to make sensible decisions. And well, to... I, I can see. I mean, I can certainly appreciate your position with regards to the Americans because they they have at best a checkered record. Personally, I think they're usually on the side of the angels, but only just a lot of the time, and not always. Um, the Americans, yeah, on the side but of the angels, sometimes. Well, most of the time, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, okay. look, they pulled us out of the fire twice. So, you know, they yeah. don't always get it wrong. I've got to go back to this, what does neutrality mean? And the reason I'm saying that is because for Michal Martin, when he was teaching not long ago, to say um, we're politically neutral, but sorry, we're not politically neutral, but we are military neutral. Yeah. Well, that goes right against the basic claim that Clausewitz made and other people have made um, over years, which has generally been proven to be true, which is that uh, war is just the continuation of politics by other means. You cannot actually separate the two in most respects you can voluntarily decide that you're not going to go past a certain point but it's part of the same continuum in our case now a uh, hundred years after the, the uh, ireland finally um broke free or at least the 26 counties broke free from uh, britain um 
I think we have to face up to the realities of life as they are now. The reality of life that's staring us in the face at the moment is the sort of criminal criminal um, oligarchy which persists in Russia. Yeah. Um, and their uh, aggrandisement policies, um, bit by bit, they were starting to take back the former Russian states or Soviet states um and they were successful in a couple of cases well but georgia they, 2008 yeah, the, the, the balkans in 2014 exactly which there was no response no, no response and that's that's, that's maybe it's because i don't know why but there wasn't but for the ukraine they obviously made a response of their own and they were a much bigger nut to crack mm. for the russians um and i think once it was seen that the ukrainians were actually out for the fight uh, and were more than capable of delivering some pretty bloody damaging uh, defeats on this much vaunted Russian army, which we were all brought up years ago to believe would one day trundle through the whole of Western Europe. But of course, we now know it couldn't have done that, not without early recourse to nuclear weapons, but certainly can't do it now. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a broken reed. Now, still dangerous. But it's a broken reed. But that's where we are at the moment. We can see that if now the Ukraine is beaten or is beaten into an ignominious peace of some sort, or at least a, a, an armistice, then who is next? And who is next? Sometime in the not too distant future will be Poland. Now, Poland, again, is, you know, uh, dramatically more powerful militarily than Ukraine was when they were invented. And they will quite probably be able to deliver a decisive defeat on Russia. But Poland is a NATO country. And so we start to get into a NATO war. At the moment, all the NATO countries are supporting the Ukraine with all sorts of stuff going on, mm. which seems to be holding them off, if nothing else. So, OK, let's leave it at that. But to come back to what then happens next is because it's not just going to be a question of the Ukraine winning or losing. If the Ukraine lose, wins and the Russian Russia collapses and Putin disappears down a hole somewhere, um, Christ knows what happens then. I mean, who knows how Russia will fall out? I mean, we, we had a brief look at it before and luckily it got sorted out fairly quickly by a couple of strong people in in russia but it, it does i'm not sure those people are there at the moment well let me let me ask you a question jim let me ask you a question just because sticking up with ukraine and and i think i um just a, a correction i think i said the balkans i meant the crimea um yeah. annexation yeah. in 2014 so let's, yeah. let's just um stick with what's happening there at the moment and i want you to think about this now rather than just answer <laughs> do my usual knee yeah. right <laughs> Do you think everything that could be done is being done to stop that war from a diplomatic um, negotiation, mediation, um, peace talks? You know, you, do you think, do you believe that everything that, that could be done to stop the we see it every day. I mean, just the horrific loss of life of, of 
tens of thousands Absolutely. of people. Um, can we all look at each other across the world, all the nation's leaders and all the leaders of the NATO blocks, EU blocks, the US, can we all look at each other in the eyes and say we're doing absolutely everything we can to stop this bloodshed? No, we certainly didn't. And, and, we're, and, and we're not at the moment. And I mean, I think when we did start to get down that road of banning fuel imports from Russia and all that stuff and the trading blocks and slinging out the oligarchs, all the rest of it, that cost us yeah, Putin didn't huge care amounts that. of money. Yeah, and he Putin, didn't care. No, of course he didn't care. But that was the point was that that was a non-violent response in an attempt to get Putin to see sense. Which he didn't. Yeah, but 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 so again, the, the the question: Do you think that okay, we tried sanctions, didn't work. So next action is is you know load up the the weapons. Is that is that the only course of action that we can? I, well, I think in Putin, as with other people that uh, we may have faced up to in the past, mm. and perhaps ourselves in the past, I think where we are is. He only understands the language of power. Now, if he can exert some sort of softer power to get what he wants, he will. And that's and he, he signally failed to do that before. So that's why he launched an aggressive war of acquisition on the Ukraine, not just to hang on to the Crimea, which, of course, was the first phase of that campaign, mm. but to then take out a strip of territory to give him easy access, and that would have all sorts of beneficial things, apart from anything else, for the Russian armed forces. Yeah. Now, that he didn't have to do that. Why did he do that? What oh, was the I, point I, of doing I'm, that? I'm, let's be clear, I'm not an apologist for Putin. No, I know, I know I, you're I, not. I, but... And... and I'm just, I'm just challenging. Our, our... So what I'm saying to you is, you tell me what nonviolent approach would 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 stop a, a head case like that. Well, well. So let's then let's then logic it out. I don't look. I I I I don't know whether there are has been sufficient diplomatic efforts to try and say, look, Crimea, you can have that. Um, this bit you can have let's draw a line here and let's pull back because at some stage at some stage that's the conversation that's going to end this some conversation like that's going to end this and in the meantime we've got tens of thousands of people that are being killed so I, I, let's logic out the, the warfare option which is the one that we're pursuing at the moment I don't think there's going to be a winner I think that's going to be a long, long, and again, I'm not a military analyst, but from what I hear and read of military analysts, this is a long game. This is a long war. It is now, and, yeah. And, and you're just going to have tens more thousands of people being killed until such time as these conversations that I've just described start to happen. So well, where, I... where is the leadership in the world? Where is the leadership in the world? Is it coming from Europe? doesn't look like it's going to come from the U.S., you know, is there the leadership in the world to try and and uh, forge those conversations and, and accelerate those conversations? Well, you say it's not going to come from Europe. It's not going to come from the EU, that's for sure. But it is going to come from NATO, which is Europe, but Europe plus by America. another route, plus America. Yeah. But even if the Americans drop out, you've still got 
Britain, France, Germany, Sweden, shortly, they'd effectively be in now anyway, uh, Italy, Spain, mm. and all those countries. Now, of um, of those, mainly Britain and France are the ones who've got the, the teeth. Mm. Um, the Germans are capable of having teeth, but currently seem to prefer to drill with broomsticks. God knows, I don't know how they came to that, but anyway. Um, but do they pursue diplomatic channels? Will NATO pursue a diplomatic channel? I guess it could do, but it will have to do it through national governments because NATO itself is not a sovereign government. Yeah. NATO is a treaty organisation. Mm. So I think, um, and I think, you know, a lot of people in the EU recognise that that's a problem. And so that's why they keep talking about setting up an, a European army or a yeah. deployment for whatever they want to call it. It's all Mickey Mouse nonsense, the way they're doing it. But it's partly because they understand that essential question. Now, the obvious thing to do for them is to say, OK, um, we will regard NATO as our military fallback and we will now head off into the uh, peaceful or more peaceful routes into um trying to find a solution now mm. one of the things the other thing i think we should think about is that we only think about one way of uh undertaking warfare which is you know the tanks get trundling everybody gets shot mm. and blown up and killed now there's these days there's a lot of much more clever stuff than that mm. i don't think the russians will back down until putin has been removed from the leadership of of russia mm. I don't think there's any likelihood of that because there's no reason on earth why he should give it up. If he gives it up, he's a dead man. Mm -hmm. So I think he's, um, I think there will be a sort of force majeure move by someone. Now, whether that's the army, we thought it was going to be uh, the the Wagner organization. They're they're not in sufficient numbers to, to do a big job, I don't think. But it was interesting when they were setting out up the road to Moscow, there was precious bloody little between them and Moscow to stop them. Yeah. And yeah. I think it was only because they realised perhaps they, they hadn't thought this through properly. That they, and they the phone calls were made. Exactly. The calls were made. And you'll be all right, stick with me, lads. Yeah. Now, in fact, that's that's I'm sure that's just a smokescreen to get them to stop. I'm sure that um, Putin... Yeah. Putin can't let them start determining the agenda because if they do, he's finished. Because they will, I, get, they will get rid of him. Yeah, and, and I agree. And I think, yeah, there's 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 many ways that you can, you know, remove a because because even if there is a negotiated settlement um, to the Ukraine position, Putin's not going anywhere as a result of that. So, um. Yeah, some uh, you're probably looking at some black ops kind of, you know, project that tries to undermine his position in in your in, in Russia. I, I have no doubt there are things like that happening anyway. Um, just one other associated question with this as well: mm-hmm. how how much is the fog of war impacting the media reporting, and and how confident are you that we're getting uh, all? the salient facts about what's happening both in Russia and even what's happening in the Ukraine? I, I'm far from confident at all. I mean, we know that in the past, uh, certainly let's take the, the, the Second World War, the press was heavily controlled, certainly in, in the UK, um, and was expected to foot the 
back the government position. So was the the uh, BBC, so that you would hear things on the BBC about some big attack across the Channel by the Luftwaffe being dis- and, and being turned back and they say, our fighters were very successful. We mm. beat off the invader. Whatever. And that's the BBC, BBC talk. They would they never say something like that now because mm. mm. they, 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 they're too mealy-mouthed about it all. But I think you can see it very often now. The number of times big Ukrainian offensives get talked up oh yeah. they've got a hundred thousand men we're gonna break through here we're gonna break through there now in fact they've been fighting like buggery for a while and the, the yeah okay they've made a bit of ground but not much mm. and it's extremely expensive in in money but especially in blood yeah. uh, to have made even those advances so that that's not gonna i don't know you know i think another way around that one lads um, so, so, so coming back then to the core of the discussion being around neutrality and um, Ireland's current position and why Ireland might consider shifting away from its current position, given everything that we've talked about, given, you know, that the ask is that we leave this, I'm not sure what this analogy is, is holding, but that we leave this house we are in where we feel good, we feel good about ourselves, it, it aligns with our values, it is about being the honest broker, it's about being, it's peacekeeping. And that as a small nation state, we're never going to be, you know, military. No, of course not. Giants. Of course not. Why, why, given everything we've just talked about, like the distrust of the US position, the isolation of the US, the, the fog of war around what's actually happening, the lack of diplomacy and again i don't know whether that's true or not but the sense that there's a lack of diplomacy the other like political issues that are happening and and the economic issues around the control of gas and 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 the attempted sanctions for which this guy and again i i I, i'm not for a second apologize being i think you know he is a a despot that is not healthy for the world Mm. putin why would ireland shift its position what 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 what's it What's the moral obligation or what's the moral well, I, I come, to change I, the position? I'll come back to Michael Martin and saying we're not politically uh we're not politically neutral on this. And I think I think we're a lot not. of people would agree with that. Yeah, we're not. I mean, they, like just to be clear, I mean Ireland has sent 130 million euro to uh to Ukraine, non-military aid. Yeah. Uh, we know that, like again, another consequence of war the refugee crisis over a million ukrainians have been displaced and i think ireland that's opened its door yeah. no no we're, 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 we're not politically the, the, they people. haven't um they haven't come out in uh open well sorry no ireland has stuck with the european line mm. on uh, on the need to face up to putin i yeah. think they they haven't stopped anything that the EU does and I think for Ireland the answer is I don't expect for a moment I don't expect Ireland to suddenly say okay please can we join NATO for all the reasons you've given yeah and I think that would and what would it bring to NATO okay it brings a couple of airfields a bit further west but that's about it Hmm. um but what I do think they could do is make a more vigorous acceptance of the European army idea I know this, we've said that, yeah, okay, you know, Ireland will participate, but it's hedged around with uh, caveats. And except, though, even with those caveats, at some point you might actually have to fight someone. Uh, not on your own. Pointless to do that on your own. You need to be, in, I think, in these days, 
look at this way if ireland can't fight a major war if britain can't fight a major war its own which it can't now ireland's certainly not going to and and that's fine i mean the the, the british military is still strong but it's a fraction the shadow of what it used to be mm. um and basically we're we've got you know just about a war strength division if we really put our minds to it plus nuclear weapons the end well we've got the navy as well of course but that's been reduced dramatically um to pay for the aircraft carriers so i think there's no nation in europe that can um fight a major war on its own none of us can do that we have to join together in some sort of meaningful cooperation or alliance in order to be able to do that that is the realistic position that was recognized in 1945 uh, and 1949 when nato was set up um that we couldn't each individually you know maintain all our our forces at this massive war strength we're like in the uk we've got a standing mm. army of four million people bloody hell i mean we couldn't keep an army that that number up for the war the number of soldiers that britain had at the end of the war was fewer than it had halfway through so mm. um so the only answer is some sort of international conglomeration uh which will enable you at least to hold off potential aggressors with with a realistic threat of a very strong response that will stop them or and obviously it could then lead on to something uh more aggressive now uh, that's a that's a that's not going to happen very often the aggressive bit like i mean i i absolutely believe the conflict is inevitable as in disagreement and different positions different cultures different ideologies is going to create conflict but do you think war is inevitable? Some wars are inevitable. I don't think a nuclear war is inevitable. I think the Russians still very much understand um, the theory of mutually assured destruction. They are terrified of nuclear war. And mm. actually, it's interesting. I was reading a book by Max Hastings on the Cuban Missile Crisis the other week. And he from shows from Kremlin sources that they were desperately afraid Mm. of the potential of the americans which they definitely had in those days to just launch a first strike and finish them off completely mm. um and they were terrified that that could still happen um they've got a lot more missiles now than they used to have, but the principle is the same mm. you know you don't need many nuclear missiles to wipe out most countries um i think it takes four to get rid of the uk it takes sort of 70 or 80 to get rid of uh the, 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 well the, the realistic bit of russia yeah. Um, and, you know, actually, Britain still has that capacity. Now, I'm not saying, isn't that great, aren't we big boys, and that we should utilise that. It's just a defensive process. Yeah. I suppose so I don't think... Yeah, I, look, I, I do think that I can't see how you could have dealt with Hitler without having a war. No, nor do I. I and, and so I do see scenarios where it is inevitable, but I do think in some scenarios it's our go-to position as opposed to other efforts being yes yeah, so i can see that and the second gulf war was definitely that the yeah. second gulf war was just i don't know if we were just trying to get saddam hussein because he tried to to bush to uh, kill george w bush's father yeah. i don't know whether it was uh whether it was tony blair looking for his margaret thatcher moment um i don't know what it was but yeah. um it, it was a shoddily argued and i actually speak as someone who was originally in favor of it 
but it was a shoddily argued thing. It turned out to have been based on false premises, false evidence, mm -hmm. and God knows what. And I think it was a it was it was a reprehensible thing to have done. I remember watching um, that, and I was I was watching it. BBC World. I was in a hotel in Athens. I was working over there for just a week or so, and it was just this amazing debate in the House of Commons. It was just like packed, you know, House of Commons and this incredible debate. And, you know, really being unclear at the time as to, you know, which way to read it. But the problem with these wars that shouldn't happen, we only find these things out after the event. That's very true. And there's there's a part of me that feels across the world that if we were to invest a fraction of what we invest in in arms, <clears throat> excuse me, if we were to invest a fraction of that in mediation, in diplomacy, and in and just other channels that we could preempt and that we could do something that would, and again, I'm not going to know John Lennon about this. I, I still think that there is some inevitability. But I think we could greatly reduce the the amount of wars and 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 look human suffering and and humans well being and and when, being displaced. When the, the 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 Pentagon real, I mean, I agree in principle what you're saying, but I mean the the Pentagon in um, the early '60s realized after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hang on a minute, we've got no we've got no sort of medium option here. You know, we haven't got that. Our, our, their forces then were actually quite disparate and weren't that well equipped. Um, and suddenly they've got this nuclear threat. And the only thing we can do is, well, we might have a nuclear war about it, which, thank God, everybody eventually and just decided not to do. And I think we need to look at the gradation. That brings me back to war being the continuation of politics by other means. We can work out a graded effort of politics which starts out with the old-fashioned diplomacy, moves into some sort of, um, you know... Economic sanctions. Un economic, unfriendly stuff, economic sanctions, arresting people overseas, that sort of thing. If you can Picking out the ambassador. Exactly. All that. You can then come into much heavier-duty economic sanctions, and then you can come into a much lower level, but perhaps a more effective level of actual warfare fighting. So we could flex our muscles mm. and take out all of the uh, Russian electronic infrastructure. Yeah, and that, that's, something like that, that. Yeah, that's something that we haven't touched on. I mean, we, we've described war in this conversation very much from a conventional point of view, but yeah. there is this cyber battlefield um, which again it opens up another area of how do we cooperate in a block, and and where yeah. does neutrality sit in in cyber defence and, and um, but I I I, I suppose I go back to the core where do we describe it as neutrality or or and then it's what's the, what's the alternative to neutrality I suppose and and for me if it's joining a block that I I don't particularly trust I don't feel that we have a voice. Um, I nah, I'd be against it. I'd, I'd, I'd rather. Well, I think you can, you can, you can. I mean, I understand that. I don't think, I don't think there's much point in Ireland as a nation joining a bloc 
where it just automatically gets carried along with some mm. war fighting proposal which it doesn't like mm. why would you mm. um but i do think there is something and again i come back to the eu it's one of the few uses the eu may have in my view <laughs> but anyway <laughs> but you could you could come back to that using the eu mm. as a place where ireland's voice is heard yeah because it's a it's a, a long-term member of the eu yeah and can say from the position of of former neutrality uh if not active neutrality now yeah you, you you know we actually don't agree with this we don't like this we we we're not going to vote for this we're gonna we're not going to approve it um it's, it's that old joke same thing there's that old joke when you ask somebody for directions in ireland and they say well i wouldn't start from here exactly <laughs> that we when we get into this discussion we're always starting from a position where war is if not inevitable we're on we're on the verge of war and it's all the things that are not happening up until that point. I suppose, you know, I, I'd like to be part of something that makes sure that those things happen, that every effort. Absolutely. Every, enough, yeah. and, and I just don't believe that any of the blocks at the moment offer, you know, that 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 level of, of preempting, <clears throat> that preempting that that, you know, that actually goes in with a mindset that says, you know, we need to avoid war here, uh, as opposed to being a mindset that says, you know, we're not afraid of war. Yeah, you know, bring it on if that's what you want. And and I just think that 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 mindset is is if if you were part of something that had that thought that way, then I I would be in support of it. But I just don't see that as an alternative. Or well, as, I think you, you, oh. yeah, all of these things are gradation gradations of of approach. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily start from the position of saying we're not afraid of war. We're going to have a war now if you want. But I would start the position of saying we're not afraid of you. You know, we are determined to carry on. We want to find a peaceful solution, and we will. But we don't. We're not afraid of what you might do to us. Because as soon as you say mm. that you are afraid of it or you don't want it to happen, you, well, you've you've set up where your weak spot is, spot is, and they will go for it straight away. Well, yeah, but we're already into fight and talk, aren't we? Yeah, we oh, are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you are, but of course. If you're dealing with an there's fighting, there's fighting talk and fighting talk. I mean, uh, trade negotiations are fighting talk a lot of the time. You're not actually going to fight about anything, but you can get pretty yeah, yeah. bloody about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, is there anything that we missed that we need to... Oh, I'm sure there's about five cover. million things that we missed, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think that'll do for now. I think it will. Great conversation, yeah. Jim. Yeah, I enjoyed you. that. That yeah. was a good one. All right. Talk to you soon. Mind yourself. See you soon. Take Bye. Bye-bye. listening to this podcast if you'd like to keep up to date with us then go to our main homepage on spotify and press the notification bell or the follow button then up to date you will be kept this podcast is a production by artificial hipsters Thank you.
Thank you.